Well, good morning, Berean Bible Church. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. A little different capacity, get a chance to take the pulpit and, and spend some time expositing God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Luke, so you're already there if you were following along with the Scripture reading. And we'll look to uh, pretty much continue our time, not there at the end, we'll go more, more back to the middle, but um, we're going to be talking about experiences this morning, experiences. We've all had experiences in life, and and none so much uh, maybe uh, that looks quite like a man who passed away this past week. Billy Graham lived an incredible life, and he had many, many experiences. He died this last Tuesday. He lived to the age of 99 years old. He dominated the scene of Protestant evangelicalism over the course of the 20th century. He held crusades for 60 years, attracting many millions to the gospel message. Billy Graham was a spiritual advisor to 12 consecutive U.S. presidents from Harry Truman in 1945 all the way to Barack Obama in 2016. This week will be a week of mourning as people recall and reflect on the American pastor, as they call him. So revered as Reverend Graham, he will lie in honor at the U.S. Capitol Rotunda on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, a whole week's worth of mourning. And as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we rightly mourn the loss of a fellow believer. And there's no doubt in my mind that Billy Graham is in heaven. He has achieved glory. He has arrived. By the numbers, he was one of the most prolific preachers of the name of Jesus Christ in all of history. 185 countries he preached in. 60 years of ministry. In total, his preaching in congregations, just like this, preaching in front of people, it's estimated that he reached 215 million people with the gospel, just like this, preaching, open preaching to them. If you add to that his radio and television and the totality of his ministry, it's estimated that Graham reached 2.2 billion people with the message of the gospel. In that time, the 215 million that he spoke to with his evangelistic organization, it is reported that they brought forward at those crusades 3.2 million cards, cards that people confessed that they had accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. What are your thoughts about this? Specifically, do men accept Jesus? Is choosing Jesus like choosing a necktie or the restaurant that you'll go to today or choosing which car you'll have next? Has Protestant evangelicalism been helped by massive crusades and massive altar calls? If you didn't choose your first birth, are you able to choose to be born again? Billy Graham was a a brother in Christ. But as I read through some of the things about his, his ministry this past week, I was a little challenged at the idea of these words, accepting Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Was his message right? Was his message accurate? Did it give the most hope for joy? Or could it be the case that a dear brother in Christ might have missed the mark ever so slightly? Does accepting Jesus Christ into your heart produce confidence, endurance, peace, When you are called to be a martyr like John Wycliffe or John Huss or William Tyndale, do you rely on the decision that you made or the certainty that Christ gives? Was Graham's message the message of greatest rejoicing? What is the message of greatest joy? What is that message? 
Are all Christians singing the same tune here? That's what we want to consider this morning. What is the message of greatest joy? Billy Graham's story helps us in two respects. First, his life, his life was an incredible experience. No one, no one of us will ever have the opportunity to preach in front of 215 million people in 185 countries. But number two, incredible experiences are no match for knowing the truth about eternal security. I want to say that again. Incredible experiences are absolutely no match for knowing the truth about eternal security. Martyrdom makes this so clear. Who wants to die for something that was built with your own hands, with your own strength? But the martyrs of our faith died with the eternal security based on knowing truth. They knew eternal security came from Christ alone, which brought the greatest joy in their greatest time of need, being tied to a stake and burned. Turn back in your Bibles from the end of Luke to Luke 10. What is your reason for greatest joy? Is it an amazing experience that you've had? Is it the promise that you hold most dear, maybe from a loved one, maybe even from Christ? Does your greatest joy have only an earthly, physical world context, or does your greatest joy reside in spiritual reality, spiritual truth? Read with me the text from Luke 10, 17 to 20. Luke 10, 17 to 20. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. The title for today's sermon is The Greatest Joy of a True Disciple. The Greatest Joy of a True Disciple. And the big idea, what we must know, what Jesus from this text wants us to know is that a true disciple's greatest joy is eternal security. Eternal security. If you're going to have joy, if you're going to have abiding joy, you will know that something happened to you that was not of your own doing. It was completely outside of you. This conversation between Jesus and the 70, it gives us a chance to look at or explore our greatest joy as they receive from Christ their greatest joy. We're flying right though, we're flying right into the middle of Gospel of Luke. We're, we're coming down and we're landing in verse 17 of chapter 10 and, and it sits in a context. There's, there's been stuff that's going on, so we need to kind of understand this a little bit. Luke is a, is a gospel writer, he also wrote the book of Acts. Luke gives us an orderly account of the life of Jesus. He starts with a birth narrative, and then he moves into Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And where we're at today in Luke 10 is just past that, just past the ministry in Galilee. It closed down in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, Christ has set his face on going to Jerusalem. He's committed to going to Jerusalem. In Luke 9, all the activities are focused on true disciple-making, making true disciples. Jesus sends the 12 apostles out to preach the kingdom of God. 
That ultimately ends with them doing something we all know very well, feeding 5,000 people, healing, preaching the kingdom of God, feeding 5,000. At the conclusion of that, as he's training these men, he pulls them into a, a little meeting and he gathers them around and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they reported to him that some said John the Baptist and some said Elijah and some said a prophet. But then he turned the question right at their hearts to test and to squeeze and to flush out what's really in you. And he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter turns to him and he says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. Then Jesus puts the proper weight on the task of discipleship, having squeezed his heart and and seeing the pure water that flowed out with that right answer. He puts the proper weight on the task of discipleship. And he says to these men following him, he says in verse 923, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The disciple-making process is hard and slow. They failed to feed 5,000, and Jesus stepped in in verse 16. They failed, these apostles, they failed, his disciples failed to heal the boy with an unclean spirit, and Jesus healed him in verse 42 of chapter 9. They started an argument about who the greatest was, and, and Jesus stepped in and said, the least of you is the greatest, in verse 48. Some wanted creature comforts, and Jesus said, you get nothing, in verse 58 of chapter 9. Some wanted to wait until daddy dies so they could get some support money so they could go out and follow Christ. And Christ says, you let the dead bury their own dead. In verse 60 of chapter 9. Some wanted to go home for a time of goodbyes. And Jesus said, no, that won't work either. In verse 62. You may think that he would want strength in numbers, right? You may think that the more, the better. Get all that you can, Jesus, to to claim your name. You may think that their physical presence with him, their proximity to him, means that they had full receipt of the gospel message in their heart. But this is not how Christ was thinking. Fanboys had gathered around. Folks on the bandwagon, much like uh, many of the newly minted Philadelphia Eagles fans, the bandwagon people, they had gathered around. They had been sharing time with Christ. And Jesus' hard teaching began to squeeze hearts. See, the high cost of of true discipleship was being felt among these men. The effect was a, a thinning of their ranks. Many who had thought about being his disciple, they reconsidered and they took off. And we see this most clearly in John 6, verse 66. These men took off. This is the background story that unfolds before we approach chapter 10. And as we approach chapter 10, chapter 10 is a training chapter the idea that christ wants to communicate is the training of hearts and minds and eyes to see him for who he really is to see spiritual realities as far superior to physical realities chapter 10 begins with the commissioning of these 70 men much in the same fashion as the 12 were commissioned in chapter 9 now we have the commissioning of the 70 men some versions say 72 We'll go with 70. These 12 men were commissioned in chapter 9, now the 70. They're not to go out into Galilee. That was the previous ministry. Jesus has his mind set on Jerusalem. These men have a different task. We need to go into the cities that I'm going to visit. Christ has a plan. He's a missionary. He's going out to visit here and here and here and here. And he's going to send men ahead of him 
to preach the kingdom of God. That's the task of these 70. For now, for this morning, Jesus is headed south. But his ministry will ultimately end in Jerusalem where he will ride down the Mount of Olives on a colt and he'll receive praise from a crowd and a week later he'll be crucified. His ministry is going somewhere, is going to the cross that lies out in front of him. Now he must train his disciples. They have their task. They're to go to every city that he's going to visit on the way south to Jerusalem from Galilee over the next several months. These 70 men, the specific task is to preach the kingdom of God. What an awesome task to preach the kingdom of God. They're to take nothing with them. This is, a, this is a training mission, right? So here's the idea. Take nothing with you. No money, no bag, no extra shoes. Wherever someone receives your message, stay with them. And if your message is rejected, then flee. You need to go away. Go in pairs of two because your efforts are multiplied. And also your testimony is confirmed by multiple witnesses. Greet no one, it says. Greet no one. Don't stay to make a meal and to make a friend. Because does the gospel message, does salvation come by friendship? Or does salvation come by hearing the word of God preached? They were to expect confrontation. They were to to decline compensation, except that compensation came in the form of, of nourishment, of food. But even at that, if they were receiving food from a house who had received their message... They weren't to think, oh, well, that food's not quite as good as that meal that I saw over there, and they're believers as well. I'm going to shift gears and go live with them. They were to stay at the home that they came to first. This is Navy SEAL training for disciples. This is basic underwater demolition, BUDS training for for these sheep, for these men who have brought themselves as disciples to the foot of Christ. This is an elite force to whom Jesus says, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. These are elite lambs. Elite lambs. Really? Yes. Yes, they are. These 70 men are focus of this morning. They're the focus of our time because of the report that they make to Jesus. They give him a report at the completion of their mission. And it's to this report that we need to turn and look. Because the report opens up a conversation for us. That, the very, that is very valuable to the 70. The words of Jesus responding to their report are so precious and we need to hunker down and look at those because they are so instructive to us. Because Jesus makes his response to them clear that the greatest joy of a true disciple is knowing eternal security. Let's consider the very first words of their report. Luke 10, 17. It's right there in your text. The 70 report the 70 report, they, they report that they begin returning and they report with joy. The 70 return with joy. This passage, this text is about discipleship of these 70 men and it's also about joy. Even joy as understood by Jesus. You see, in this text, Jesus is going to reveal three areas of great joy for the 70 disciples. Three areas of great joy for the 70 disciples. That's what's coming in the text. And then he declares one area of joy is supreme, is the greatest over all of these other areas of joy. In order that we see the greatest joy of a true disciple clearly, we need to look at all three areas of joy. So let's begin with number one. What's the first area of joy for a true disciple? Well, joy in experiences. 
Area number one, joy in experiences. The report of the 70 begins with the knowledge that they return with joy. This is wonderful. This is fantastic. They went out and they had a good time. They saw some incredible things. Their source of joy, they stated in the text, it says in verse 17, their report, they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, how's that for an experience, right? Have you had any experience like that? Does this even compare to Disneyland or Hearst Castle or Legoland? The surfing that you did yesterday or the skydiving? This has absolutely other world implications. Subject, demons being subjected in Christ's name right in front of you. I'm guessing that none of us have seen anything like this. We need to discuss this and understand their experience. So let's, let's consider this. They're talking about demons being subjected to them. At some point between Genesis 1 and 3, Satan led one-third of all the angels into rebellion against God. His fall from grace is recorded in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Demons have emotion, intellect, and will. They're, they were angels, and they remain spirit beings. They're mobile and free to roam around the earth as they wish, and they have power to afflict humanity, to indwell and terrorize, to lead astray, to lead into a false worship, into idolatry. They interact with this world, they interact with the elect, but they have no ability, no ability to harm the elect spiritually. They cannot indwell the elect. And they, they may try to trick and deceive the elect, but remember, Jesus is the author of our faith and salvation, and he won't lose any of his sheep. Loss of one sheep to a demon is an impossibility. So demons are real. Their power is real. They are a spiritual force. And yet, this text makes clear that even they were subjected to 70 men. Second, we need to look at this word subjected. What does it mean to be subjected? It's very much like Luke 2.51. Luke 2.51, where Jesus himself continued to be in subjection to his parents. He was under their authority. He needed to be obedient to them, and he was, in fact, compliant with them. Another example might be this one in, in Romans 8.7, where Paul, he talks about the mind, and he says this about the human mind. He says, the human mind, the, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The human mind will not be subject to God, and yet these demons were subjected under mere men the 70 disciples of Jesus. But only this by way of qualification, right? They were only subjected under these 70 men by way of qualification. What was the qualification? In his name, in his name. Well, this phrase, we see the source or the sphere of the demons being subjected to men. Demons can only be subjected to something that has a greater power. These 70 in and of themselves had zero power. There was no power just like you and I. However, the 70 didn't commission themselves to go preach the kingdom. The 70 were commissioned by Jesus Christ. He sent them out in his power to communicate his gospel. The demons were subjected to these disciples only in Jesus' name. You might remember the funny story in Acts chapter 19, verse 15. There's this group of guys, about seven of them, called the sons of Sceva, 
They tried to use the name of Jesus and the name of Paul to get a demon out of a man. And it says this in verse 15, and we all laugh as we know what's coming. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them. So much so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now that's comedy right there. That's, that's the Bible's version of comedy. That's great. You try to subject demons and you're not commissioned. Did it work for the sons of Sceva to commission themselves into Jesus' service? No. No, you, you can't choose to commission yourself into Jesus' service. Moreover, demons know Jesus and demons know Paul. And demons know who the elect are. The demon knew that the sons of Sceva weren't truly with Jesus. That's what allowed him to the ability to pounce on them. He knew who the elect are. The power, the point is the power resides in the name of Jesus. And Jesus holds all the power, even in commissioning who it is that preaches in his name. He is perfectly in charge of all things, eternally, with great certainty and security. What does this say then? What does this say about the 70 and their obedience and their training? What does this say about Jesus, of his choice of men, of his ability to provide for them and protect them? I think about Jesus' choice of men. (laughs) There's a few gangly of us in here, aren't there? he, he He can use clay, broken, worthless pots to get his work done. What does this say about the ability of the gospel to advance? On whose shoulder does gospel advance happen? On these shoulders? Are you kidding me? On these shoulders here? No, the gospel advances on the shoulders of Jesus Christ alone. The implications of this truth that demons are being subjected to mere men is absolutely astounding. This is an incredible experience for these men. The 70 had this awesome experience and it caused them to rejoice. It caused them to rejoice. And they didn't rejoice alone. Look at verse 18. They didn't rejoice alone. Jesus jumps right in with them on their rejoicing. And Jesus says to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. How is this to be understood? Is this literal or figurative? Is this a physical world reality or a spiritual world reality? As you can imagine, the minds of men wrestle with such things. You've got high and lofty theological societies that want to debate all these kind of points. And they present all kinds of ideas and options. One might be Jesus was referring to the original fall of Satan. Another, Jesus was referring to defeating Satan in Luke chapter 4 when Satan was tempting Jesus. Another might be that Jesus was referring to a, a future event. To get through the clutter, though, sometimes, sometimes it's best to get back to the text and actually dig dig down into the words because the words of text of the text matter. You see the the verb tense is important in this instance. It's it's very explanatory for us. In the Greek it's an imperfect active indicative. It translates I was watching. I was watching. The active sense of watching. It's not a traditional simple past tense verb. It doesn't mean I watched but rather I was watching, active, continuing. 
Here's what Jesus is trying to communicate. As you 70 were preaching the gospel, as you were seeing souls saved, as your message was received, as you saw demons subjected to you, I was watching. I was actively watching what was going on. And it looked to me, it looked as I saw this, like a picture, like Satan's kingdom continually being destroyed, like crashing lightning. That's what Christ saw. That's what he wants to share with these guys. Consider this. Consider this triumph over Satan from the mind of Jesus. Did it just start? When the 70 returned, did it just start happening? The, the, the defeat of Satan by Jesus? Was, was the defeat of Satan a one-time activity? Or is Jesus continually victorious over Satan? These victories of the 70 are just proof of an already known fact. And the fact is so great. The fact is that Satan is already defeated. Does that have implications for your life? Is that a great point of application? Can you just tuck that one inside and and live this week with that truth? His defeats are continual. They're ongoing, multiple events down to when you drop the toothpaste into the sink and you curse yourself because the toothpaste fell into the sink. Even that matters to Christ. There's a reason for that. Does God orchestrate all things, all events in our lives? Absolutely. Because his eternal defeat is signed and sealed and delivered, Christ has always been in total control of all things. And often we live like he's not. Christ's whole life is a continual defeat of Satan. And our ability through the power of Christ to defeat our own personal and wicked sin is a continual defeat of Satan and proof of Christ's righteousness. From Genesis to Revelation, Satan is only defeated continually. And from the moment of your salvation all the way to the end of your life, all the way to the end of the age, is only victories for Christ continually and defeat of Satan continually. So at this time, with his 70 disciples coming to report, Jesus here looks like the coach to me. He looks like the coach who said, guys, you did it. That sneak play on fourth down, you executed it so perfectly. You got the touchdown. You defeated the enemy, just like we had drawn up in practice. Jesus is rejoicing. Jesus is joining in on this end zone celebration. He's spiking the ball. He's so pleased at what these men have done. He's so pleased in the continual earthly defeat of Satan's kingdom. This predetermined destruction. He's thoroughly enjoying it. Much like I thoroughly enjoy watching the nativity every year at Christmas time. I thoroughly enjoy watching the Passion of the Christ every year at Easter. It's Olympic season. I thoroughly enjoy going back and and recalling to memory all the things of the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team and what those college kids did to the Russians. I don't have any problem going back and, and having these experiences, having the excitement come over again. And Christ is there with them in the moment. Even in as much as in his mind it might be a replay, he's all for this. And he's in the moment with them, rejoicing. What an absolutely great encouragement for them to have the king of the universe celebrating with them. This, this just, what, what the, the experiences for these guys just keep going through the roof. 
demons subjected to you and now the king of the universe is spiking the ball in the end zone with you? This is fantastic. What a great day. This is area number one of joy for a true disciple. Joy in experiences, right? Joy in experiences. So we, we as Christians, we get to have joy in experiences. That's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. This, this uh, experience was having demons subjected to you in Jesus' name. But Jesus is going to take the conversation and he's going to turn it. And he's going he's to press into it to a place of contrast. But we need to go to area number two first. Area number two is joy in promises. So if we had joy in experiences in verses 17 and 18, now you're going to see joy in promises in verse 19. In verse 19, two promises come out of the text. Jesus is the great coach. To play for him is so incredible. He shared the celebration, and then the coach gets back to coaching. And the coach wants to have their eyes lifted and focused on the next play, the next down, the next series, the next season of life. Let's read in verse 19. Jesus goes on to say this in verse 19 of the text. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. With this statement, Jesus gives two glorious promises to these men. There's great joy in these two promises. Let's consider these two promises. First, though, he wanted to get their attention, and he uses this word, behold. He adamantly wants to communicate something to them. Two things, in fact. And so we open up with the first of two promises. The first of these promises is this giving of authority to tread over serpents and over all of the power of the enemy. And we need to ask a few questions of the text. What kind of authority are we talking about here? What what, what does this mean, authority? Well, it means control, rule, dominion, which Christ owns perfectly. He has all rule. All control, all dominion. You don't have to go very far in your scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, when you just open up the first chapter of Ephesians, the first chapter of Hebrews, the first chapter of Colossians, to see the power invested in Jesus Christ. Listen to this from Colossians 1. He is the image. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus has been walking these disciples to this understanding. He wants them to get this point, that he is loaded with authority. He has healed masses of people. He's preaching the kingdom of God, the Father. He's feeding 5,000 with loaves and fishes. He's living right in front of their faces sinlessly. He wants them to know his authority and not doubt him. And not doubt him. Look at verse 22 of, of Luke chapter 10. Jesus goes into speaking to the Father right in front of these men. And he says this in verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my father. How many things? All things have been handed over to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. You know, I think that truth sunk into their minds. 
I think that truth sunk in really well because that truth is not only recorded here in Luke's gospel, but Matthew in Matthew 11:27 picks up the exact same verse. Exact same thoughts. All authority had been given to Christ. And Christ gets the ability and has the power to give his authority and his salvation to whomever he wills. And unless he gives his salvation and his authority, you don't have it. He must give. And that is how you receive. So what about the serpents and the scorpions? What are we doing with these guys? Is this a literal or figurative? We're back to these same questions. Literal, figurative? Is this physical world, spiritual world? Well, considering that Jesus had just used a figure of speech when he was talking about Satan falling from heaven like lightning, it seems fitting that this figurative language continues. And that's what we have here. Add to this the fact that there were no recorded cases of scorpions and snakes being trampled on by the disciples. Besides, if we read in Ephesians chapter 6, what is our primary battle with? Is it with scorpions and snakes? Don't we have antidotes for a lot of those things? Isn't our battle with, uh, isn't it a, for our struggle is not against, here's the, here's the text right out of Ephesians six twelve. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. The physical world is a challenge. And I get that. It's a challenge for all of us, right? I mean, we all face this challenge. But if you're here today and you are truly a disciple of Christ, he has opened your mind to the spiritual reality. And so we're, we're those who take these two realities and we figure out we need to balance these two. Because we're living in the physical, but we understand the spiritual. We understand the eternal. There's much more to this battle, this spiritual war that we have to wage than the physical. The battle is in the spiritual. And there's another thing that we need to take away from this text. Consider the imagery if you cast your mind back to Genesis 3.15 when God promised to Adam and Eve that the seed of a woman, or actually promised to Satan, that a seed of a woman would come and crush him. And then Christ gives these people, gives these men, these 70 disciples, the ability to crush serpents and snakes. There should be a little bit of your mind being cast back to the faithfulness of God from the beginning of creation and the fall of man, the fulfillment of that with Christ handing out power to tread on serpents and scorpions. But Christ goes further. The authority is comprehensive and it's covering all the power of the enemy, not just serpents and scorpions, which are names attributed to the demons and the world powers and all of Satan's activities. We know that Jesus here, as he talks about the enemy, is talking about Satan. Satan is the chief personal enemy of all of mankind. But Ephesians 2 lists our enemies as three. And I ask this question in counseling a lot. What's your, what's your biggest enemy? What's your, what's your number one biggest problem that you have? Who's after you? Where do, where do I expect the finger to go? It needs to circle back in and go... Right at your own heart. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 talks about. You are your own worst enemy. Next is the course of the world. And next is Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air. And Christ tells these disciples that they have been given authority over all their enemies. Satan? Demons? What about their own heart? 
What about their heart that, like the other disciples, maybe wanted to cut and run right now? What about their own heart that thought that maybe the accommodations at the last city were too much? What about their own heart that faced the rejection in the one village and it felt so overwhelming that they wanted to just cut tail and go back up to Galilee and and do some more fishing? You see, Christ gave them the ability and the power to have authority over all their enemies and I'm convinced that included their own heart, the wickedness and the depravity in their own heart so that they wouldn't cut and run, that they stayed with him in the power that he gave to them. Finally, regarding this promise, once again, there is need to get into the actual Greek language. We're going to do this a couple times this morning, but again, it's critical as we start to dive down into what the text actually says. There's a, there's a need to get at this tense. This verb tense is huge. It's a big issue. The Greek perfect tense indicates a previously completed action, an action that happened over here in the past that has ongoing and continual effects right up through the present and on into the future. Christ is saying to them, yes, I gave you this massive authority in the past. I gave it to you for your ability to defeat all of your spiritual enemies. He's saying, I want you to continue to use this authority, to use it to to win and to defeat all that stands in front of you so that my message will go forward through you. It is a confirmation of his trust in them, of his choice in them, of his power through them. This This is promise number one of verse 19. And what a serious and unbelievable promise it is. Surely there's great rejoicing in this idea that all power, all authority has been given to these men. But second, there's a second promise here. The text goes on to say, and nothing will injure you in verse 19, and nothing will injure you. You know, again, we have to go back to this idea of is this figurative or is this literal language? Are we talking about physical world realities or spiritual world realities? Well, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that all of the 70 went through the rest of their lives without anything so much as a paper cut. I think that might be pressing it a little too much to believe that. Jesus, however, is consistently dividing life into these two realities, the physical world and the spiritual world. And he always gives priority over the physical to the spiritual realm, to the spiritual world. This is the point of Jesus' comments in just a few chapters over in Luke 12, 4 and 5, when he says, I say to you, friends... Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more ability they can do with it. But I will warn you to fear, who to fear? Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is so unconcerned with the physical world. Consider the march of death that he's on now as he sets his sight on Jerusalem. He is unconcerned about the physical world. It it would be really short-sighted to believe that this promise has only entirely literal components to it. Is the greatest hope and promise of these 70 in not getting a snake bite or not getting a, a scorpion sting? However, it is an incredibly amazing promise, an absolutely amazing promise, if it means that nothing can separate these men from the love of Christ eternally spiritually. Christ prayed for the elect to be spiritually guarded by the Father in John 17, 11. Christ said that he had guarded his sheep while they were on earth. And then Christ wants to give his joy 
to the disciples. He wants it made full in us. In John 17, Christ prayed that the elect would be kept from spiritual harm and that the elect would experience the fullness of his joy. You see how awesome Christ's ministry was to us? He was praying for us that our joy would be made full like his joy. The second promise is to keep them from spiritual harm. Again, for their joy. So we have these two promises in verse 19. We have the promise promise of all the authority to conquer all the enemies and safety from spiritual harm. Both promises give great reason for rejoicing. These promises can also be added to the totality of the promises of Scripture, which all, all those promises give us great joy and great hope. True believers have great joy in all the promises of Scripture. And we're seeing great joy in this passage. First, obviously, in the experiences, joy in experiences. And then second, joy in the promises, which are glorious. What could be better for the true disciple of Jesus Christ? Incredible spiritual experiences, wonderful truths about Jesus, about promises, about heaven and God and Christ. Yet I'd ask you this. Are experiences and knowledge salvific? Are experiences and knowledge those things that give salvation? Aren't these enough for any man to want to follow Jesus? Aren't these enough? Can we go out as a church and give out knowledge and give out experiences and harvest salvation? Is that the equation? Is that the way that it works? Is it just that easy? Can we get together as a people of God and have a big carnival here for a youth group this summer and and bring in all the kids and, and feed them all kinds of good food and give them a fantastic experience? and teach them what the Bible says, and then we know, we can know that they are saved. Is that the way that it works? Frankly, no. It's not. That's not the way it works. Because you can have all kinds of wild experiences, and you can attribute those to Jesus. And you can have all kinds of knowledge of Scripture, its promises and its commands, and you could walk beside Jesus and kiss him like Judas and never be a true disciple. However, there is a third area of joy for us to consider this morning in our passage. And the joy found here is a continual fountain of living water. Let's consider the size and importance of area number three. Joy for a true disciple comes in eternal security. Area number three of joy. Joy for a true disciple comes in eternal security. Read with me as we continue reading in our text from Luke 10. Jesus speaking to the 70. He's just made his case about these two promises that he's giving them. He already spiked the football and rejoiced with them when they came back. And he says this now. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subjected to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subjected to you, But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. This word, nevertheless, it is a word that indicates a contrast is coming. With this word, Jesus effectively pulls out the scales. And and he's going to put this thing to the balance. To balance and to weigh out value. 
to weigh out worth. What's going to go on the scales today? Sources of joy. Sources of joy are going to go on the scales. On the left side of the scale, Jesus places experiences, spirits being subjected to you, even the promises of God for this life. He puts these experiences on this side of the scale. And on the right side of the scale, Jesus places eternal and spiritual truth, specifically your names being recorded in heaven. Which side of the scale goes down? Which side of the scale carries the freight? Which side of the scale is heavy? Which is worthy? Which has infinite value? Clearly, your names being recorded in heaven, something that has certainty, assurance. That's what Christ is offering these men this morning. When they come back and report to him, security, certainty, assurance. This sounds incredible. It sounds really important. Clearly, this is a very powerful and significant point that Christ is making. And many will read this and they might say, oh, oh, isn't that wonderful? My name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life in 1960 when Billy Graham came to town. I I accepted Jesus as my Savior and he wrote me into his book. Or another one might say, when I chose Jesus, he opened the book of life and scratched me in there. Or, these men worked so hard, Jesus was obligated and he was, Jesus was honored to write them into the book of life. None of these are right. None of these are helpful to understand the strength of what Jesus is saying here. There is a strength here that gives us all the motivation we need to overcome anything in our lives. Anything. And that's what we want to get to. And I think that a series of questions will get us to that strength as we look at this contrast that Christ is drawing. First, let's look at the command, rejoice. How can Jesus give a command to rejoice? If you choose your salvation, if you choose to allow God into your heart, if we have that kind of power or ability to choose, then Jesus could only be making a suggestion here. And it would sound like this. Hey, guys, you, you should uh, take joy in knowing that, you know, if you choose me, potentially I'll go over and I'll get a chance to scratch your name in the old book of life. But that's not what Jesus says here. Twice in the passage, Jesus gives commands, imperatives, you must. And he says, do not rejoice in your earth-bound temporal experiences. Do not rejoice in those. Rather, the second command, rejoice. Rejoice that you can know that I am God on high and I have looked at the books and I know that your name's in there. I have so much power. Your eternal security is set in me. That's what Christ wants to communicate. Are these commands of Jesus meant to help or to harm? To increase joy, strength, peace, fellowship? Or is Jesus in this instance with his command to rejoice, is he being a spiritual bully? 
I don't think Jesus is trying to be a spiritual bully. I think he knows what output he can get from these men. He knows what output because he knows what he input. He knows what he gave, so he knows what he can get. Does Jesus give these commands expecting compliance? You bet he does. (laughs) You bet he does. Can Jesus get compliance from unregenerate men? Maybe for a short time, but never with the right heart attitude, right? So the answer to that question, can Jesus get compliance from unregenerate men, is, is no. No, the unregenerate man wants nothing to do with God's glory. They only seek their glory continually. Sure, for a while, they might be able to give what passes for temporal, earthbound compliance, but never with their efforts would they be found pleasing to God. This is Judas Iscariot, right? This is the life of Judas, right? This is also the, the, the folks that approach Jesus in Matthew 7.22. Listen carefully. Matthew 7.22. Many will say to me on that day. This is Jesus speaking. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is Hebrews chapter 6. This is 1 John 2.19. You don't make yourself commissioned to Jesus' ministry. He's the commissioner. And if he's done that work, how certain is that when he does the work? Are these 70 men true disciples with regenerate hearts who truly love Christ? Yes, they are. What's the difference? How can we know? Well, you add this up for me. Add verse 17. They were filled with joy and had incredible experiences. Add that to verse 18. Jesus rejoices with them in their successes. Add that to verse 19. Jesus makes great promises to them about the future. Add that to verse 20. Jesus, the God-man, tells them to their face that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What does that add up to? Salvation. That's what that adds up to. It adds up to salvation. Jesus told them they were saved. Salvation is not a choice. It is a gift of grace from God. What follows then must be a life of obedience. Jesus can make the command to rejoice because Jesus saved these men. Jesus had thrown out their heart of stone and cleansed them and washed them and gave them a heart of flesh filled with the Holy Spirit. But just to make sure that you see these men didn't earn this on your own. Let's move to the second point of verse 20. Let's, let's look at what was written in heaven. It should be obvious to all of us that Jesus is referencing here the book of life, the book of life. This shows up in the Old Testament many times. Daniel 12 makes mention of a great rescue in a time of distress never before seen. But the rescue in that time of distress is for those whose names are written in the book of life. Exodus 32, Psalm 69. Isaiah 4, all of these talk about a book and the names written in it with great certainty. Then you go to Revelation and you look at chapters 20 and 21 and you see the great white throne judgment. And if your name is not written in the book, you're thrown into the lake of fire. But if your name is written into the book, then you will arrive at the temple in Jerusalem and enter to see the Father and the Son on their throne. Once again, we need to return to the grammar. The Greek verb written here is in that same perfect tense. 
which means that it was a prior action that was completed that has continuing effects. And the reason I say these things about the Greek grammar is because English doesn't carry that load. English has multiple words that it takes to add up to get that sense. What does this mean? Well, it means that your names were previously written. It means that God's not sitting around up there with a pen in his hand waiting for you to make your choice. Your choice has already been made by the Father. He knows you. And if he loves you, and if he's opening your heart today, then you choose to respond to what he's doing. He calls his people to him. He loves them so much. There's not one that he owns that will ever go astray. He always brings them to himself. The sovereign decision of God has already determined what names are in the book. Being in the book is not a matter of free will or free choice of men. It's the exact opposite. The book is full of the names of the elect, those chosen from before the foundation of the world. And that gives a look at the person of Jesus Christ, knowing him, his eternality, his Godhead, his perfection. Jesus told these men personally. Can you imagine the experience that they had that day? Absolutely incredible experience. Being told by the Savior that you are written in heaven. Your name is written in heaven. You see, in the mind of Christ, these are all settled issues. Your salvation, Satan's defeat, demons being subjected, all authority, salvation's assurance. It's all in Christ. It's all, it's all accomplished by Christ. It's all in the name of Christ. There's just incredible implications in Jesus saying, your names are written in heaven. They're world-changing because the plan of God is set and it won't be changed. Jesus said to these men effectively this. He said, you have been selected from before the foundation of the world to belong to me, to be children of God, to have an eternal life in my name. Jesus knows eternal security is the greatest joy of the true disciple because he's the maker of true disciples. He knows eternal security. You know, there's times in ministry when a man's heart might get cold or dry. What keeps a minister marching along? Is it his own confession of his own salvation? Wouldn't that wither away over a period of time? Wouldn't that weaken and die and fall out? Wouldn't he choose some other passion? But if Christ is the one who settle the minister into his seat and into his position. He has an internal lamp that cannot be defeated. Area number three that we looked at is joy and eternal security. And Christ says this is the greatest joy. You can have joy in experiences, and you will. You can have joy in promises. And as you read the text of scripture, you will, because they're there. We have joy in those two things. But Christ says this, you take your joy in knowing that you are eternally secure, not by your own choosing, but because I declared it to be the case. That's where our joy comes from. His true disciples are motivated by knowing with certainty the security that he offers. And maybe a couple of parting questions for us. Maybe the question for you is, do you know the cost associated with being a true disciple of Jesus Christ, or are you kidding yourself? Do you know the cost associated with being a true disciple? These men that we read about this morning, the 70, were true disciples. They looked at the cost 
square in the face. And they realized what it would take, denying themselves, taking up their cross daily. Have you come up with some hybrid formula of works and morality sprinkled with biblical verses that you're counting on for your salvation? Do you trust in your experiences? Are you holding on to the emotional high of responding to an altar call at age 10? Do you trust in your Bible knowledge? You've got John 3.16 in your hip pocket and you flash it around every day to everybody that you come in contact with. John 3.16 can't save you. Christ must have already saved you. These 70 obeyed Christ. Their obedience came at a huge personal cost. And it was proof that Christ had already done a work in them. You know, true disciples will not trust in their own strength for anything. True disciples will not over-prioritize experiences. And true disciples will not rejoice in earthbound experiences. But they'll understand this, this dichotomy, this, this, this twofold paradigm that we're in. There is the physical world that is wrought with all of our cancer and all of our bum hips and all of our broken relationships and all of our failed work prospects and our broken down battery and car. And there's the spiritual world where we have to be obedient to Christ regardless of anything that's happening over here. Christ gives us strength through the spiritual understanding that you are eternally secure to defeat all of these challenges. That's the strength of this message. That's what he gave to these 70. And that's what I hope you receive today. Know this strength, that you are eternally secure in, in Christ. Rejoice. Rejoice in this. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, your word is so great and so clear. You have made so much in the way of revealing to us your plan and your power we do not stand in our own strength. Father, be honored and glorified in us that we would understand and know eternal security that you have purchased through your Son. How precious that is to us. Let us sing about it now in Christ's name. Amen.